Good morning. Today's scripture readings come from 2 Kings 4, verses 42 to 44, Psalm 145, and John 6. So from 2 Kings 42 to 44. One day a man from Baal Shalisha brought the man of God a sack of fresh grain and 20 loaves of barley bread made from the first grain of his harvest. Elisha said, give it to the people so they can eat. What? exclaimed his servant. Feed a hundred people with only this? But Elisha repeated, give it to the people so they can eat. For this is what the Lord says, everyone will eat and there will be some left over. And when they gave it to the people, there was plenty for all and some left over, just as the Lord had promised. From Psalm 145, verses 13 to 18. For your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. You rule throughout all generations. The Lord always keeps his promises. He is gracious in all he does. The Lord helps the fallen and lifts those bent beneath their loads. The eyes of all look to you in hope. You give them their food as they need it. When you open your hand, you satisfy the hunger and thirst of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in everything he does. He is filled with kindness. The Lord is close to all who call on him. Yes, to all who call on him in truth. And then from the Gospel of John, verses, um, chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. After this, Jesus crossed over to the far side of the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Tiberias. A huge crowd kept following him wherever he went because they saw his miraculous signs as he healed the sick. Then Jesus climbed a hill and sat down with his disciples around him. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration. Jesus soon saw a huge crowd of people coming to look for him. Turning to Philip, he asked, where can, we bribe, where can we buy bread to feed all these people? He was testing Philip, for he already knew what he was going to do. Philip replied, Even if we worked for four for months, we wouldn't have enough money to feed them. Then Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. There's a young boy here with five barley loaves and two fish. But what good is that with this huge crowd? Tell everyone to sit down, Jesus said. So they all sat down on the grassy slopes. The men alone number, numbered about 5,000. Then Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks to God, and distributed them to the people. Afterward, he did the same with the fish. And they all ate as much as they wanted. Everyone was full. Jesus told his disciples, now gather the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. So they picked up the pieces and filled 12 baskets with scraps left by the people who had eaten from the five barley loaves. When the people saw him do this miraculous sign, they exclaimed, surely he is the prophet we have been expecting. When Jesus saw that they were ready to force him to be their king, he slipped away into the hills by himself. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Wow, I didn't realize that listening to all the text together would make me so hungry. But I know there's some great cornflakes and rice for you. we'll share with you after the service, if you like. And over the past few months, uh, our family 
began doing some family therapy with a counselor to help us improve our communication and understanding with one another. And last week, the counselor had us do an exercise uh, where we would talk about our feelings, but also how we would do things differently and think differently based upon them. And for the purposes of this exercise, we uh, chose to talk about something very simple, like climate change. Now, it's not that that issue is particularly contentious in our family, but we, the counselor had us do that just to talk about how we felt about it and how we can change our thinking and actions as it relates to it. And so one of us said it just felt too overwhelming. Another one said how it felt like we couldn't really make a difference in what we do. Another one expressed just apathy towards the issue. And then we have Ashley, who frequently reminds Julia and I that you guys, aka old people, are leaving the world as a mess for us. You know, the news seems to be filled with large-scale problems that make our efforts seem insignificant, perhaps even hopeless. And how do my day-to-day -day decisions actually stop a heat dome from forming on the west coast of North America? How do my decisions of the day change whether the Amazon rainforest now produces more CO2 than it consumes because of rapid deforestation? These are big problems. They seem so big that, and on top of that, we, we've got our individual needs and our individual uh, cares to be concerned about uh, for ourselves, but also for our loved ones. How do I pay off this debt of mine? Are the doctors actually going to find out what's wrong with my body? I've been living with this for years. How do I deal with family members or friends who see the state of our nation very differently from, my, from, from myself? There are plenty of problems to go around and to navigate. There are problems that are universal, and there are problems that are very particular. How do we get through all of these? It's easy to just throw our hands up in the air and say, you know what, it's too much to think about. Let me just distract myself, watch Netflix, and go play and shop. Or we might feel like, I need to do something. I'm going to jump into action and go into activist mode and towards anything that seems wrong in this world. But neither of these seem to help our sense of hopelessness and helplessness to affect change in both these universal and particular concerns. So in these selected lectionary texts today, we discover that the living God is concerned for both the universal and the particular. And God is on the move to set things right in all circumstances. The Christian faith offers incredible hope for us. We can see the world and see our lives differently when we look at God's character and agency in the world. In the text today, so we'll talk through that, we'll see how God is God of the universal, God of the particular, and also God is ultimately for us. God of the universal, particular, and ultimately God for us. Now, the psalm that was read begins with this glowing recollection of God's character. And uh, in, in it, we didn't have it read, but verses 8 and 9 uh, are a familiar verse to many. It says, The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow in anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all that he has made. But verses 15 and 18 that Janelle read for us remind us specifically of God's providential care for individuals. God really has a plan for all. Take a look at these verses. One generation tells of your works to the other. The Lord is trustworthy in all his promises. He has compassion on all that he has made. All your works 
praise you. All people will know your mighty acts. The Lord satisfies the desires of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways, faithful in all he does, near to all who call on him and watches over all who draw near to him. Do you notice a common word here? I tried not to emphasize it too much. Good over all. God over the universe. There is nothing in reality that God is not over. And even those that seem the farthest away from God, those the wicked and those who reject God, will one day find themselves under the watchful eye of God and his righteous judgment. Psalms like these give us incredible hope. When we encounter problems that seem overwhelming in our world, whether it's climate change or wealth inequality or global poverty or uh, displacement because of famine and war, whether it's human trafficking or political divisions or systemic racism or whether systemic racism exists, because it does, all of those universal problems are under God's caring purview. Nothing escapes God's attention. Nothing is too difficult or too ugly for God to say, you know what, that's just too much for me. Let's just leave it there. Nothing is beyond God's wisdom to solve. And though these problems seem so huge and beyond hope for us mere humans, with all of our wealth and with all of our ingenuity, they are not beyond hope for God. And let me just say uh, something about this. God of the universal is not the same as God being a universal God. Now, the former suggests that there is no part of creation that God does not exert God's authority over, and even the difficult parts of human experience. As the Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper has once said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Nothing is apart from God. But when we read Psalm 145, Uh, verses 18 and 19, we find this. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them. You know, that latter statement of God being a universal God is not what we're presented with in this psalm, nor in scripture itself. A universal God accepts that Uh, suggests that all divine objects of worship, whether it's Allah or Buddha or insert your preferred um, deity here, all of them are absolute equivalents to the Lord God of Scripture. So it doesn't really matter which path you choose. A universal approach to God sounds tolerant and accepting. In some ways it is. But it ignores how all these claims to divinity are not necessarily equal in truth and authority. How do these systems speak to the problems, both universal and particular, in our lives? How do these faiths describe how we fix them and move forward? And what is our role in it? Those who are inclined to equate all gods as the same and all faiths as the same will discover that these faiths answer those questions very differently. And most we, we look at them and say, well, it's just about being a better person and how do we make our world a better place. But the Christian faith stands apart. It's distinct. The living God of these holy scriptures offers incredible hope to us because, uh, for, to those who call on the God of the universal, unlike any other. 
It's not just about human beings becoming better people so that our world becomes a better place. There will be one day, what Scripture tells us, where there is a great reversal that happens. There will be a one day when the living God meets out judgment upon the whole universe. But that's not all. Despite the fact that human society seems to overlook um, this, God, this text reminds us that God cares deeply about the individual needs of all people in all circumstances. We see the texts say, uh, the psalmist say, God cares especially for those who are falling, those who are oppressed, whose heads are bowed down, whose uh, uh, are heavy laden, those who call to God and are those who are in awe of God and those who love God. For these people in particular, God cares and meets them. And this leads us to our second point, that God is a God of the particular. When this psalm, where the psalm text highlights the universal concern of God and hints at a particular concern, we see this particularity show up in stories like we find in 2 Kings. In fact, uh, though Janelle read only the last three verses of that chapter for us, the entire chapter actually highlights how the living God cares about particular people uh, in particular circumstances. If you open the Bible and scan it, on, and that particular chapter begins with a poor widow who is in debt and she has no money to pay. And Elisha shows up and multiplies the oil in her home so she could sell it off to pay off her debt. There's a Shunammite woman who's a well-to-do woman, but her son dies and Elisha raises him from the dead. There's a famine in the land. People are hungry. Resources are limited. And there are, these are universal problems, but God's compassion and kindness and provision focus in on these particular people in all levels of society. And here in that te the text, uh, God shows up to provide food for Elisha and his band of prophets. You know, Elisha was the one, uh, according, it seems that he was entitled to receive the first fruit offerings that were typically provided to priests. These other apprentice prophets didn't seem to be able to access that resource. And in the midst of a famine, there was insufficient food to go around. Yet Elisha takes what he is entitled to, and he shares what he has with the men with him. He doesn't build barns to store it for himself. He doesn't put it away and say, this is mine. You go figure it out for yourself. Work a bit more. Maybe you'll get a bit more. He simply tells his servant to share the loaves, even though the loaves seem insufficient to feed a hundred hungry men. We see it here in the Elisha's servant's response. He sees the impossibility of what's before him. There's a hundred hungry uh, men and there's 20 loaves. Do some quick math, it's like five hungry men to a loaf. How in the world do we feed them? Yet, the meal feeds them with leftovers. Now, it's not clear from this account whether that bread is multiplied so everyone is full. We're not told that. Or whether the miracle is that a hundred men took just enough for them to feed, eat a little bit and had enough to share with everyone else. Both are actually miraculous in the time of famine. So the question is, the difference is, is that Elisha trusted the word of God rather than, uh, and the reality of God's word than the reality that was before his eyes. The question for us is, well, what are we inclined to trust? 
God's word or what's before our eyes? You know, most of us are smart and rational and uh, appreciate science. So we see and process the world through those paradigms. And despite being a society that's blessed with power and wealth and technology, we still struggle with the problems of pain and injustice and incredible need in our world. Just take a drive after church, if you're here with us or sometime when you're down here on the hill, from the church down to Union Station along Massachusetts Avenue. I find it ironic that between the grandeur and the gravity of the Senate buildings and the beauty of Union Station sits this triangle-sized block uh, filled with an encampment of unhoused people. I think that's an un, a living image of those working on these universal, large-scale issues of our nation juxtaposed with the particular, these very needy people, particular needs of individuals. Now, we might be inclined to use our intelligence towards these big-picture, universal problems, but miss out on meeting the needs of our neighbors and the most vulnerable around us. We want to come up with the policies and the play politics with those in power, all while the vulnerable go on having their needs unmet. Someone else can do it. Some other organization can do it. The government can do it. But God calls Christ followers to engage both in the universal and in the particular needs of those around us. And it's understandable for us. We rely on science and rationality and material resources. And we often do that at the expense of really trusting God. But technology and knowledge and power and wealth can never replace God. But we can use them for God's purposes. You know, many of you might recognize the name Francis Collins, who is the director of the National Institute of Health. Now, he was uh, instrumental behind the development, the rapid development of COVID vaccinations over the past year. You may not know this, but he came to faith in Christ as an adult at the age of 27 when he was uh, doing his genetic research. At the time, he was an atheist, a self-professed atheist, and doing his rounds, he encountered a hospice care patient who once asked him, like, what's your faith? I've shared with you what my faith is. What's yours, Dr. Collins? And that stirred in him on a journey to explore how what he saw in the beauty of science, and he discovered this beauty of God, that they were not incompatible areas of reality. In fact, they were deeply interconnected. As he threw his efforts to support the COVID vaccination development, you can hear how his passion is fueled by his concern for the most vulnerable. He says this, I am worried about how this pandemic is affecting mental health. People have fears about catching the disease and about the economy. We need to understand that and figure out how to assist people. Clearly, this, was, this interview was earlier in the pandemic. You know, his faith and his compassion fueled his work to meet the particular needs of people. And this leads us to the final point. That God is the God of the universal, but also God of the particular, because God really is ultimately for us. God is for us. God is for you. Elbow your neighbor and point him and say, God is for you. Remember that. You know, uh, it, it, we, we see glimmers of God's care in 2 Kings 4. 
but we see the riches of this truth in the gospel text today. You know, at first glance, it seems like Jesus is following Elisha's playbook. Large crowds are hungry. Someone arrives with a little bit of food. Jesus' close friends don't believe that that's going to feed everyone. They look at the limited resource. They don't see how it's possible. But Jesus speaks the word and makes it happen. Everyone's stomachs are full, and there are even leftovers. Sounds like the same plot line. But there is something deeper revealed here in the way that God is for us. It's highlighted by the fact that this scene is the only miracle account that shows up in all four gospel accounts. Yes, Jesus feeds a great crowd with just five loaves and two fish given by this young, young boy. But there are two details that are unique to John's account. Only John's account points out that it is Passover in verse 4. And in verse 14, only John's account points out how the crowds wanted to make Jesus a king by force because of the miracles he performed. Jesus is for them, not just by meeting their immediate needs, material needs of these particular people, but Jesus comes to meet a more universal need shared by all of humanity. So let's take a look at this reference to um, Passover in verse 4. Yeah, the Jewish Passover festival was near. Why did he make this reference? It, 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 to, to know something about that is to know why that John uses three Passover references in the entire gospel, almost like to mark the three acts of a play. This is the second reference to Passover in John's gospel. The first reference happens when Jesus uh, po points out his own death, saying, this temple will be destroyed, referring to his crucifixion later. And the third reference happens at the end of John's gospel, and it's connected to Jesus' actual death, because John's gospel does not actually include the Last Supper. So the feeding account of pa at Passover here in John 6 serves to connect Jesus as the one who's the true flesh, uh, whose flesh is the true bread of life for all. And Kate's uh, helpful uh, children's story reminded us of the Exodus story, where the Jews, you know, uh, it, when they were in Egypt, the Passover meal was set up, reminding them of this Exodus story and the deliverance from Egyptian captivity. And in that Passover meal, a lamb had to die for, for the meal to preserve the life of the firstborn son of the family. The original Passover scene points to Jesus, the Lamb of God, who dies to preserve the lives of all who would believe in him. Now, during the exodus of God's people from Egypt, God also provided manna from heaven. Apparently, it sounds like it's cotton candy. Bread every day to feed the crowds. So, Jesus feeding the 5,000 during the Passover season points to more than just filling hungry bellies, though God does do this. The miracle itself is God is in the very body of Jesus, who's for the salvation of all who would take and eat. Jesus is the true Passover lamb that is for us. Now in verses 14 and 15, we see that the second way God is for us uniquely in Jesus. Like Elisha, Jesus carries out the role of a prophet in seeing and meeting the needs of those around him even when it's not his responsibility. 
Why does Jesus even care to feed the crowd that comes? It's not his responsibility as a visiting rabbi. The crowds see Jesus' miracles as a sign of Jesus being the prophet who was to come, that they were expecting. And the people try and force Jesus into the role of a king. They want a king and they want a God who is for them on their terms and on their expectations. And to rule as a monarch is to, but to rule as a monarch is to enter into this political realm. But Jesus chooses otherwise. Instead, he withdraws to a secluded place by himself. He's going to rule in a different way than they anticipate. Jesus is going to be for them and for the world in a much more significant way. Jesus is for them, not only in their individual immediate needs before them, but in restoring their relationship with the living God that has been broken and disconnected because of selfishness and because of ignorance. And that's, some, that's a hunger that every human being struggles with, whether they know it or not. For us today, how often do we come to God with our expectations of what God is to do in our lives and in our world? How often do we uh, try and bend God to do our bidding? Because we see and think we've got a better view. We want God to fix the big universal problems in our world, and we want God to meet us in our particular needs. And this text today reminds us that God cares deeply about both of these and is fully able to address them in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And when we call on God and respond to God's gracious initiative, we find that not only does God give us hope for the big universal problems in our world and the personal particular problems in our lives, but he also invites us to participate in overcoming them. As the psalm text reminds us, because God is faithful in God's promises and because God is sovereign, God is for the good of all. And so we as Christ followers, as worshipers of this living God of Scripture, we can be that too. We can be for the good of all. Not just those who think like us, not just those who look like us, not just those that we like. You know, when we are invited to get vaccinated against COVID-19 and when we're when we are asked to wear our masks, I get it. We, we never like to be told what to do. We don't like the discomfort. But these are ways for us to help solve a global health pandemic. These are ways that we can care for our neighbors because we don't always know what our neighbors are going through. We participate in God's good and gracious activity for all when we don't allow politicized voices to inform a scientific and medical concern. I mean, how many of us would go to our local elected officials to ask them, ask them what, hey, what should I do? Because my doctor just did my, my, uh, my annual physical checkup and blood work, and this is what he's telling me to do. What do you think? But that's exactly what many who are COVID vaccine hesitant are doing with their actions. 97% of people who are hospitalized right now due to COVID, there's 90, more than 99% of those who have died are amongst the unvaccinated. This is not a political thing. It's simply effective science and medicine. Whether it's large-scale concerns like COVID or climate change or racism, 
we can work for the good of all by joining God in that good work. We can trust God also for the good of individuals. You know, many of you know and care for Jane Charles, a longtime member of WCF. She's experienced tremendous health limitations, and she's given me uh, permission to share this story as I spoke with her this week. If you don't know that, she she's, uh, has visual impairment. She's immunocompromised. She's, been, she's battled COVID and survived. And she's done ra- all of this with all of these health conditions, raising four children who are now adults as a single mom. This week, she was admitted back into the hospital again, and she had four gallons of fluid emptied from her body. As I spoke with her and prayed with her, I just always find myself so encouraged when I speak with her, even though it's so hard to hear. She said, you know, this is hard. It's really difficult. But you know, I know God is for me. My Heavenly Father has always taken care of me. God loves me. And it's not my time yet. I'm here for my children. I'm here for my mom. So I trust God will take care of me. You know how encouraging that is? How hopeful that is? I'm there to call and pray and encourage her, but her words remind me of how much I need to trust and hope in God. I think the way that she, Jane, hopes and trusts in God is how I hope, want to hope and trust in God. That kind of hope spills over into the world, telling of God's care for all, one life at a time. Know that the living God of Scripture is the God of the universal and uh, the God of the particular, and ultimately that God is for you. May you live boldly in that truth to the glorious praise of God. Amen.